So um, last week we began a two-part mini-series on the Relentless God. Who was here for that? Or at least watched it on YouTube. Okay? Somebody's watching it right now. That's good. Online and in person. That's good. Uh, <laughs> So our text was in Exodus 6, uh, specifically in verses 9 to 13, with a focus on verse uh, 9. Uh, and this showed us that God, uh, the God of covenant keeping, uh, showed us that even though at this point in the story of Exodus, he's been rejected twice by his own people and doubted by his own people twice, nothing was going to stop him from fulfilling the covenant that he made with their forefathers. You guys remember that from last week? They rejected him once. After they asked Pharaoh for a three-day leave, they rejected him again after he said his I will statements. And they said, at the second time, they even said, I'm not even going to listen to these promises because, you know what? 400 years we've been waiting and none of these promises seem to have uh, come true. Um, so they rejected him twice. Uh, but God, being the God of the covenant, the relentless God that I talked about last week, um, kept going. Uh, still, after being rejected the second time, he told Moses and Aaron, go. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Right? That was the first thing I wanted you guys to see from last week's, or from our text in Exodus 6, uh, verses 9 to 13. The second thing I wanted you guys to see, and I mentioned this part of this last week, uh, is that God's relentlessness to save is needed or is necessary. He has to do that. He has to be relentless when it comes to his salvation. Why? The answer is in verse 9 in Genesis, or sorry, in Exodus 6. Uh, because of Israel's broken spirit and harsh slavery. The, God, the reason why God needed to be relentless when it comes to his salvation is because of Israel's broken spirit and harsh slavery. I'm going to read you the quote I read uh, last week as well. Uh, this quote is from uh, Riken. Uh, it says here that the Israelites were enslaved by their slavery. Uh, if you have the quote up, uh, can you guys uh, put it up? Again, I quote, the Israelites were enslaved by their slavery. Their very chains were what prevented them from hearing the cry of freedom. More literally, their spirits were broken. So broken that they would not listen to the promise of deliverance. I just believe it, but they don't even want to listen to it. Now, what kept them in bondage was their bondage itself. Uh, that's where... I kind of introed this second part that I, got, I want us to see, that the, the, the necessity of God's relentlessness is because of that. Because Israel was in bondage to their bondage. So they were being kept in bondage by their bondage itself. And I said last week that this is what it meant to be stiff-necked. Remember that? In chapter 33, I said, God called these people stiff-necked after uh, worshiping a gold calf. Remember, they got so bored at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses to come back. They told Aaron, here, take our jewelry, make us a, a golden calf to worship. Right? And God called them, you stiff-necked people. I said last week, what does it mean to be stiff-necked? To have your head on backwards. Right? 
to have your head on backwards. So I could be facing you right now. If I was stiff-necked, my head would be facing that way and my body would be facing this way. So have your head on backwards. And this meant that because their heads were put on backwards, they were not able to look forward to God's promises. And they were limited to only see what they wanted to see. This case, everything that was behind them. That's all they saw. And what was behind them? Egypt. Right? This is why throughout the whole of Exodus, the whole story, what we're going to see is these people worshipping idols, grumbling about water, grumbling about food. Right? To a point where they even said, take us back. We had it better in Egypt, at least in Egypt, we had meat. Here, all you're feeding us is manna. Right? Their heads were so on backwards, that's all that they could see. They forgot that they were enslaved. <laughs> right? Now, some theologians call this doctrine the doctrine of man's total depravity. If your head is on forwards right now, you can't turn it enough so that you would be looking back. None of us can. Unless you've seen the exorcist, obviously. You can turn your head all the way around. <laughs> but <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie, you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but if, yeah, if your head was put on straight, you can't turn, you can't turn your head backwards so you can see what's behind you. So if your head's put on backwards, <laughs> same thing. You can't turn your head enough to see forwards. So this is the problem that the Israelites were having. They were stiff-necked to the point that they are unable to look forward, unable to believe, unable to wait for, hope for, the promise of freedom that God was giving them. Right? Some theologians call it total depravity. Some call it the doctrine of man's total inability. We can't. No matter how hard we try, we can't do it. Um, so, back to our question that I left for you last week. How does this state of sinful man make God's relentlessness to save a necessity? How does the state of sinful man make God's relentlessness to save a necessity? I hope to share with you my answer to that question this morning. So first, let's talk about why sinful man is stiff-necked. How, how, did, how did it happen? Why, why are we like that? What happened to us to make us this way? And for that, we need to go back to the beginning, again, of mankind. Where God created the heavens and the earth, the last thing that he created were what? Humans, right? First the man, and then after the man couldn't find a, a partner suitable for him. Right? He looked at the cow, no cow no horse no 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 monkey no no monkey what did the god do put him to sleep took a rib out and what created woman and then when adam saw the woman what did he say whoa man <laughs> whoa that's perfect <laughs> That's perfect. I can name that woman. That's my partner. 
And both of them, the Bible said, were naked and were not ashamed. Naked and were not ashamed. Nowadays, you walk around naked, people think you're either... And plus, people don't walk around naked anymore. Why? Because... No. There's some wives out there who probably have a hard time being in front of their husbands. What happened? <laughs> if we were created originally to be naked and unashamed, what happened? Uh, Matt Chandler had a sermon on this, and I encourage you to listen to it. It's really good. It's called The Perfect Storm. Uh, so Google that. Matt Chandler Perfect Storm Sermon. Uh, in his sermon, he comments that uh, Genesis 2.25, where, where the Bible says that man and woman were created naked and unashamed, that's how God originally created us to be, to walk in innocence and honor. God created us to, to walk in innocence and honor. Uh, why is that? Because God created us, uh, you know, on his own image, right? He created us that way. He created us to be like him. So we were created to walk in innocence and honor. But then chapter 3 comes along. And what happened? The woman, right, listened to the snake, ate the fruit, gave up to her husband. Husband ate and both fell into sin. What happened after they fell into sin? After they... We're given, you know, they ate the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? Their eyes were open. And what happened when they saw themselves? Oh, I'm naked. Started covering themselves up. Fig leaves. And they even hid from God, right? So God's design that we should walk in innocence and honor turned into something else. It was broken and then turn into something else. So now instead of walking in innocence and honor, the norm for human beings is to walk in guilt instead of innocence and shame instead of honor. That became our norm. So now all of us are walking in some sense of guilt and shame. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in guilt and shame? And again, Chandler uh, said this about guilt and shame. Both guilt and shame is a falling short of some sort of standard. So both guilt and shame is a falling short of some sort of standard. Guilt comes when we fall short of the standard of the moral law or moral code. That's why you feel guilty. Shame is not so much a breaking of a clear moral code, Shame has more to do with how we see ourselves and how we fall short of how we see ourselves. You get the difference? Guilt is a falling short of a moral code. If there is a law, you fall short of it, you're guilty. Shame is a falling short of how you see yourself. If you see yourself a certain way, you fall short of that, you feel shame. Now, there's this human psychologist, uh, humanist, sorry, humanist psychologist called, or named Carl Rogers. He believed that the way we see ourselves has three parts to it, okay? 
There's the self-image, the way how we think people see us. There's a self-esteem, how we feel about ourselves. And there, 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 there's this thing called self-ideal or the ideal self. The ideal self of a person is the person that we want to be. Everybody has a self-ideal, the person that you want to be. And this view of yourself has the attributes or qualities that you are either working towards or want to possess. It is who you envision yourself to be if you were exactly as you wanted. You get that? Your self-ideal is who you envision yourself to be if you were exactly as you wanted. Like for me, um, my self-ideal, how I want to be, is more loving, more compassionate, more patient, and more godly. If that was me, that would be my self-ideal. But every day that I wake up, that's not me. That's why I continue to walk in a some le low level shame because that's not me when I think to myself, but that should be me. You get what I'm saying? So you think about yourself, what is yourself ideal? There's some people who keep telling people, who keep telling other people, I'm a humble person. So not just thinking about their self ideal, they're voicing it out. Hey, look, I'm a humble person. Or look, I'm beautiful. Self-ideal being voiced out. Or look, I'm very generous. Self-ideal being voiced out. Right? It's not, for some people, really look at you and say, no, you're not beautiful. <laughs> Or no, the fact that you say you're humble means you're not humble. But for some people, they're voicing out these self-ideals because that's who they think they are. But when people disagree with them, or if you see yourself, man, I, yeah, I, I'm not humble. There's a, low, there's a kind of low-level shame that comes with that because you don't you're not living up to how you see yourself or your expectations about how you think about yourself <laughs> you get what I'm saying that's where shame comes from right now now that we define guilt and shame how does it work how do they work how do they relate to each other uh, guilt and shame can either work together work independently or work against okay they either work together independently or against each other the best way that guilt and shame relates to each other is when they work together so for example if i broke moral law or moral code like stealing or lying there would be a feeling of guilt because i just broke a moral code I broke a moral law I will feel guilt because I violated one of God's moral codes that guilt should bring about shame 
Why? Because if I believe in God and I'm a Christian, then I shouldn't be doing that. So I'm living or falling short of how I'm supposed to be as a Christian. So when you feel guilt, shame should follow. There are some people, they feel guilt, but no shame. <laughs> no, it's true, right? But, but really, when they work together, that's how it should be. You feel guilt, shame should follow. And the reason why this is the best way that guilt and shame uh, relate to each other is when they work together, is that because God uses that to call us back to himself. Right? That dirty feeling that we have when guilt and shame works together is a mercy coming from God because deep down we know that we were created for more. I shouldn't be lying. I shouldn't be stealing. Right? You were created for more. We were created in God's image, so therefore we were created for more. That's the best way that guilt and shame kind of relate to each other, it's if they work together. But, <laughs> I think our norm is a lot of times is when guilt and shame work independently. Okay? This happens when people who do something morally wrong feel no shame at all. You look outside the society, it's that way, right? They celebrate wrong. Amen? Or is right? What's the parade every time we're, our church anniversary is being? What do they do at Gay Pride Parade? Celebrate what? Being different, celebrate love. No, it's a celebration of Sin, the Bible calls. Romans one thirty two. Uh, if you got, if you have it on uh, the screen, uh, Romans one thirty two. Read that. Do we have that? No. I will look for it. I'm not used to looking at my Bible anymore because if they beat me, then yeah, they haven't beaten me yet. Okay, good. Romans 8, or somewhere, Romans 1, 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you read the verses before that, it talks about idolatry, homosexuality, and all those things, how God gave them up to their debased minds, because they won't listen God gave them up to their debased minds. And so what happened after that? Even though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Yes, yeah, support. I support. Right? I know. We're all sitting here like, I don't do that. Really? Okay, so who watched Deadpool? You don't know Deadpool? Okay, talk about approval of <laughs> something morally wrong. Right? Who watched uh, Breaking Bad? Approval of, I'm guilty. Right? Because I think bad guys are cool. <laughs> and a lot of us do. 
In fact, nowadays, bad guys are the good guys now. It's switched. The Bible is talking about how people nowadays, they do something morally wrong, they feel no shame at all, and not only that, they even celebrate what is being done morally wrong. Mm. That's why guilt works independently from shame. What about shame? How does shame work independently from guilt? Or, in other words, uh, when you do nothing morally wrong, you didn't do anything wrong, but you still feel shame. <laughs> A lot of people are like that as well. I, you, don't, you didn't do anything wrong, but you still feel some kind of shame. Like, oh man, I, I don't want to go out with my friends because I'm ashamed of what I, my clothes what I'm wearing is not up to their standards. Or I'm ashamed because I'm poor. I don't have any money. Or I'm ashamed because of the car I drive. Oh, there's some people like that. I'm ashamed because of the car I drive. Or you don't have any money. Or you live in a certain area. Right? I live in Scarborough. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> I forgot, I forgot, people in Scarborough, <laughs> I forgot, people in Scarborough are proud to live in Scarborough, <laughs> all right, <laughs> there's no shame, ain't no shame, ain't no shame in living in Scarborough, oh, Brampton, <laughs> but there is some kind of low-grade shame because of where you Live. I used to live at Caledonia, that apartment building there. And people keep making me feel shame about it, but I'm like, no, man. That's the best place we've been <laughs> why, why are you trying? Why are you making me feel ashamed of living there? No. It's my place. It's free cannabis, free. <laughs> right? But, sometimes, but somehow people feel shame where they live or some people feel shame of having stuff like if you bought like i know somebody who you know you bought some you know like a bike or something you feel ashamed to show people because oh they might think i'm this or they might think i'm that if you have stuff that you bought that you didn't steal there's nothing to be ashamed of <laughs> right but people feel shame when it comes to that, even. Um, so that's how guilt and shame works against each other. Pe people feel guilt, no shame. People feel shame, no guilt. And lastly, guilt and shame can work against uh, each other. This means that we can feel shame for doing something right. And you don't feel shame for doing something wrong. Right? So that's the way they work, work against each other. Feel shame for doing something that is morally right and feel no shame for doing something that is morally wrong. This is probably the most dangerous way that guilt and shame affects us and our relationship with God. Right? For example, there's nothing morally wrong with loving God and loving Jesus and showing our love through the way we worship. Right? But... 
Why do we sometimes feel ashamed to sing, raise your hands in worship, clap? There's nothing wrong with that. Why do we feel shame for doing? For, for If you feel like when you're worshiping, that you want to. That's why I miss Nana Jerry, man. <laughs> you remember Nana Jerry? Nana Jerry doesn't care. Well, how come? What about the rest of us? Why do we feel shame for that? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing morally wrong with worshiping God the way you want. Um, I get it. Uh, some people, they're just not hand raisers. At least sing. <laughs> right? Nothing wrong with that. Right? Or sometimes we feel ashamed of uh, praying in public before we eat. Anybody? What? There's nothing wrong with praying before you eat. Why do you feel ashamed? Why is it that sometimes when we are given the opportunity to talk about our faith, we retreat? We feel ashamed of that as well. Or when we're at the light at Lawrence and coming off of Allen Road on the way to church and we see panhandler by the stoplight, right? We see a panhandler by the stoplight. Some of us, we even roll down our windows. To give. Why? Because we're, well, you know, people's looking at me. And, right? Some of us, we don't give because we feel ashamed that we all, all we have are coins. <laughs> we don't have paper to give. <laughs> Is it just me? <laughs> we, feel the shame, we feel shame at the wrong things. We're not supposed to be feeling shame with about those things because there's nothing wrong with those things but we feel shame anyway or sometimes you feel ashamed about speaking up when something bad is being said about God or about Christianity or we feel ashamed to call out a brother or sister in love to rebuke or to discipline we feel ashamed to do that there's nothing wrong with that now here's the question how does guilt and shame working against each other or independently affect us? How does it working against each other or independently affect us? It's like this, okay? And this is why we keep saying, you know, if, you're, if you profess to be a Christian, live like one. We keep saying that, right? Why? Because when you don't, you're putting yourself in a situation where you face guilt and shame everywhere you go. Okay? How does it work? Okay? Let's say you're a professing Christian. Okay? And you measure yourself up morally against scriptures or what the Bible says. Right? You measure yourself up against, you morally measure yourself up against what the Bible says. Meanwhile, your self-ideal or the me you want to be is shaped by the world around you. If the world says rich is, rich is best, I want to be that. I want to be rich. I want to be... It's shaped by that, your self-ideal. Meanwhile, your moral self is shaped by scriptures. 
If you're that and you're living a double life, then you will be living in guilt and shame wherever you go. How? Because when you go to church, you're going to feel guilty. Why? Because I just committed all those acts on Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, <laughs> Monday. The whole week you've been living like you don't know God. And then you come to church because that's how you measure yourself up to be morally and you feel guilty. Meanwhile, when you go spend time outside of church, those parties that we go to, to whatever it is that we do, we feel ashamed. Why? Because we're the goody-goody at the party. You don't drink. right? Sometimes I may feel like that. I'm made to feel like that. Because I don't drink. So my friends are, you know, just come on, just stop being a Christian. We're not in church. But I just don't drink. And it's not about Christian or anything like that. It's just about preference. There's a shame in that. Sometimes I don't even want to go to these parties anymore. Because I don't want to be noticed as the guy who doesn't drink. Or some people will say, okay, I'm not going to drink because pastor's here. <laughs> that makes me sometimes kind of feel shame. Right? But if you live like that, if you're double, if you live a double life where you're measuring yourself up morally with Bible and Christianity, and then your self-ideal is in the world, you're going to be facing guilt and shame wherever you go. And if that's your norm, okay, if you keep doing that, that's your norm, and you will be enslaved by your own guilt and by your own shame. Once you give in to, or you give yourself up to guilt, guilt and shame, you'll begin to feel as if there is nothing honorable about you, that you don't deserve to be happy or to be loved because you see yourself as such a failure in pretty much all aspects of your life. Right? It's like Judas. How did Judas feel as a follower of Christ to betray him the way he did? He was guilty and ashamed. And he set himself up for that because the whole time he was following Christ, that's who he was. Same thing with us. If we continue to live double lives, just because Jesus says, if you're hot, be hot. If you're cold, be cold. Just don't be lukewarm. Because this is, this is going to be your life. Everywhere you face, there will be guilt or shame. And you keep living like that, you will become enslaved to that. That you will always feel guilty or you will always feel ashamed when you're not supposed to. The Israelites' spirits were broken. That's what happened to them, right? Because of hundreds of years of living in slavery, their minds and hearts have lost hope of ever becoming free. That they don't even want to listen to any more promises of freedom, let alone hope for any chance of freedom. And remember the elephant illustration I gave you? How, how it, elephants were raised back in India? From the time they were small, they're tied to a, a, a stake with a chain. 
so that even if they try to escape, they won't be able to. They're raised that way for years. By the time they grow up to be full size, they don't need chains anymore. Just a piece of string. And they won't run away. Why? Because they're so used to not being able to get away. They're so used to being tied with a chain that even though it's a string, they still see it as a chain. Living in guilt and shame will have the same effect on someone who is living a double life. The longer you live this kind of life, the harder it will be for you to believe that first God has forgiven you, and that even though he knows you more than you know yourself, he still loves you and delights in you. It's hard to believe that because all you do, everywhere you turn, you're facing guilt or shame. So God tells you, you're forgiven. No way, God. I can't believe it. If you can't believe you're forgiven, how can you be forgiven? If you can't believe that God loves you even though you are who you are, how can you be loved? So much so that the picture that I want us to see here for that person who is living in guilt and shame is this. So you're always guilty and ashamed because of the double life that you live. You, you're like Adam and Eve. You're always trying to run away from God, trying to hide from God. Meanwhile, God is always looking for you, relentlessly chasing you, and you keep running away. God wants the best for you, but you keep running away because you're so used to guilt and shame wherever you go that you're hard-pressed to be convinced that the promises and the very words of God are true even to you. Right? You see that in little kids. Uh, uh, my kids were like that when they were kids. And it's time to blow the cake for their birthday. And everybody's looking at them, waiting for them to blow the cake. And everybody just can't wait to clap. Or if when they do clap, what, did they, what does the kid do? A lot of times, they cry. Why do you think that is? Because they're not used to that. They're not used to having all this affection and poured onto them, attention poured onto them. They start crying. Oh. They're afraid of it. They want to get away. They want to... They don't want to blow the cake anymore. Right? Or is it or when, some, when somebody uh, compliments you? Yeah, some people love it. Yes, compliments. <laughs> A lot of people, they, they shrink from it. Right? They, right? They shrink. They turn red. They shrink. Like, so if I say, like, what in, man? I can't, I can't come up with a compliment. Uh, <laughs> you're the best dressed. <laughs> no, but that's, that's, how, that's how it is. You're like, no, no, stop saying that. But that's how we react to it, right? It's a misplaced shame. You're not used to that. So when God comes to you and says, I know you inside and out more than you know yourself but I still love you. If you keep living on guilt and shame, you'll be like, nah, no way. You'll turn away from it. It's like what? 
or just like what the birthday kids do. Right? Why? Because we're so used to that. Because we are, that, that's ingrained in us after the fall of Adam and Eve. And the more we live into that, the more we live double lives, the more we live that kind of lifestyle of guilt and shame, the more you put up walls against you and God's goodness to you. Right? Just like the Israelites. It gets harder and harder for you to see God's goodness through faith. To the point where you don't even want to listen anymore. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Innocence and honor gave way to guilt and shame because of a lack of faith in God, which led to a lack of faith in each other. Why do you think they were ashamed after sin, when their eyes were open to right and wrong? Why do you think they were ashamed? Is it because they were overweight? Oh, I don't want to see the... I don't want Adam to see all this. Or I don't want Eve to see. Right? Is it that? Or is it because I can't trust you anymore? You might, say, you might think something bad about me. You might say something bad about my body. You might say, that's what happened, right? They lost trust in each other. They're, people call it malice. They, 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 there's malice now. Right? Because of sin. And that's why we're, how we are now. And because of sin, some people still show off. There. Now here's the question. Uh, I can finish this. How does God overcome the guilt and shame in our lives? If we all have it, some different levels of it in our lives. How does God overcome that? First, uh, how does God overcome the guilt in our lives? God's relentless love and his relentless commitment to his covenant overcomes our guilt. How? Through faith in the gospel. Can you read this? Uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Go ahead, read it. Canceled our debt. Nailed it to the cross. Killed all our debts. God says that. Gets rid of your guilt. It should. <laughs> if you believe it, it should. That's how God gets rid of guilt. And now God has to be relentless in doing that. Because every time we sin, some people... Keep building up a wall of guilt again. God breaks it down. You sing. You build it up again. Why? Because it's just you were used to that. You used to be surrounded by a wall of guilt. You're used to living that way because you live a double life. But thank God that he's relentless in breaking down that wall. And he's going to keep doing it. Until you surrender and say, you know what, God? Yes, I believe. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Right? Because the tendency for all of us is when we sin, we run away. 
kids sin, they hide. Now how many vitamins, little vitamin thing I found in my couch? Because when my kids were little, I made them drink vitamins. They don't like it. So they hide it in the couch. That's what we do. We don't want to do it, but we know we're breaking law. So what do we do? We hide. If you keep doing that, if you can't, if you can't believe or look forward to God's promise of forgiveness and hope that yes, God is faithful, He will do that, then you will always be living in guilt. And again, the only way to overcome guilt is to believe that all your sins have been forgiven. That the perfect sinless life that God expects you to live, but we fail to do every day, has been lived for us by who? By Christ. And through His life, we are saved. You need to believe that. Otherwise, you'll be living in guilt all your life. We need to believe that by God's grace, Otherwise, our own guilt will eat us up. Now, clarification. The guilt that I'm talking about is not the feeling of being guilty. It is our standing before God as guilty. I'm not telling you not to feel guilty when you commit a sin. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, I just cussed out this old person. It's okay. I'm not supposed to feel guilty. No. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your standing before God as a sinner. That's guilty. That's the guilty I'm talking about. And when you believe you have been forgiven, that should be gone, erased. Everything paid for. Everything settled on the cross. Right? So I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel guilty when you commit a sin. What I am saying is that we shouldn't be enslaved by that guilt because there is forgiveness that is promised through faith in Christ. Amen? Don't be enslaved by that guilt because there is forgiveness that is promised through faith in Christ. And when we believe that, we can stand before God innocent because of the blood of Christ. Is that clear? That's the fight of faith that Paul keeps talking about, right? That's the struggle to believe that God has forgiven us through Jesus, even though we still commit sin daily. It's a fight because the enemy doesn't want you to believe that because he wants you to keep building a wall of guilt so that you will never be free. Thank God his pursuit of us is relentless because we need it to be. Right? Every day, you just pick this up, go to John 3.16 and say, nope, my sins have been forgiven. Go to Colossians 2. Nope, God says, promised. He nailed it all to the cross. Settled the debt. My sins have been forgiven. Amen? That's how you get rid of or God, that's how God gets rid of our guilt. What about shame? How does God help us overcome our misplaced shame? If shame is that feeling of dirtiness, regardless of falling short of a moral code, 
And the only way to drive that feeling out is to believe that even if we're fully known, God still loves and delights in those of us who believe. Even if you're fully known by God, like there's nothing you can hide when it comes to your sins, when it comes to who you really are, there's nothing you can hide to God. He knows you fully, but do you believe that He still loves you? Even though He knows your deepest, darkest secrets? All the skeletons in your closets? He knows all of those. Do we believe that He still loves us? Because again, living in that kind of shame, uh, it's like... Um, it's like that. Is it Munich syndrome, or I forget? I forget the the name for it. Where the kidnapped or the person who was kidnapped falls in love with the kidnappers, Stockholm syndrome, right? So wh why is that? Because they've been they've been there so long that it feels like oh man, if even if I get out, they feel like they have to keep going back, or um, being. Uh, in jail so long that you can't. Have you seen Shawshank Redemption? Even if they get out of jail, they don't feel comfortable anymore because this is not, I'm not used to this. I, I want walls. That's what it's like if you keep living in shame and if you don't believe that even though, yeah, God knows you inside and out, He still loves you, still delights in you. You're going to keep living in shame all your life. And it's hard to get out. The only way to get out is to believe that God loves you despite of. Right? That's why the scriptures encourage us to fully examine ourselves. Be honest with yourself for who you really are spiritually. Because God says, if you confess your sins, I will be faithful and just to forgive. So whatever that is, there's no hiding from God anyway. Just confess, right? Confess your sins. Be honest with yourself, especially about your spiritual standing with God. If you don't, if you feel like, uh, let's say you're a worship leader or, or a deacon in the church, but you feel like, man, I don't really know God, just be honest with it. And God, by His grace, will enlighten you, will show you who He is. Don't keep fooling yourself and say, no, but I serve, but I do this, but I sing in the choir, but I come to church, but I read my Bible. And yet there's no relationship? Be honest with yourself and your standing before God when it comes to this. Don't be ashamed to come to God and say, you know what, I, I don't know you, <laughs> but I want to. Because God knows you inside and out. And the more we try to hide, like Adam and Eve, the more shame is built up in us. And the more we let ourselves be enslaved to our shame, the more we lose focus on God's relentless love and kindness towards us through the gospel of Christ. And much like what I said about guilt, I'm not telling you to feel unashamed. Whenever you fall short of God's ideal for you in Christ. I'm not telling you that. Hindi ko sinasabi sa inyo maging mga walang iya kayo. 
right? There's a difference between walang hiya and wala nang hiya. Can you translate that to somebody who's beside you? There's a difference. Yung mga walang hiya, talagang makapala na na mukha yun, right? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, don't be ashamed to come to God with anything. Because He knows you inside and out. So don't get that, don't get that wrong, please. Right? Because the, here's the thing, the more you feel or the more you dwell on shame, the more you're running away from God's relentless love. When Adam and Eve hid you think God didn't know where they were? Of course not. God knows everything. He knew. There's no hiding from God. The only way to drive out shame is to humbly run to God and see how God shows grace to the humble and love and salvation to those who repent. Right? Prodigal son. What did the prodigal son do? Give me my inheritance. I don't care if you're still alive. Give me mine. And what do you do? You spend it on hookers and parties. <laughs> that's, that's what the Bible said. He went and YOLO'd for a few weeks until his money ran out. When his money ran out, what happened? He ended up living in pigsty. That's where he worked. And his pay is to eat the foods that the pigs Eight. At that point, he realized, oh man, my, my father's servants eat better than me. Let me just go back there and be one of his servants. Is that walang niya or wala na yung hiya? No, no more shame in that, right? If you're living in that and you realize you're living in that kind of uh, state, should be no more shame and say, I'm going to go back. If your kids ever move out and ended up coming back, would you not take them back? <laughs> he's, uh, by the way, he's one of our dickens. Uh, so don't come to him and you. <laughs> no, seriously, if your kids say, you know what, I'm leaving, I can do it by myself. I, I got all, everything that I have, I, I don't need you anymore. And they went out. And then after a few years, come back, busted, broke. Would you not take them back? <laughs> Some bad parents here. Of course they would take them back, right? You're, you say that now. You would take them back, right? You make them sleep in the garage or something, but you would take them back. <laughs> No, but that's, because that's, that's how we view it, right? It, oh, man, if I do this, no, I got it. Like my dad, my dad would take me back. <laughs> Sitting right there. <laughs> if I did that, my dad wouldn't take me back. But have you tried? At the same time, this is the, 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 the story of the prodigal son. It's not about the sons. They're both idiots, right, the sons? It's about the father, right? Did the father take him back? 
Did he even make, did he even wait till the son, the prodigal son, make any, any excuses, explanations to why he did what he did? No. He saw him coming in. He ran to him. The father ran to the son. Well, then what did he do? Put on a robe, right? Put on the ring that says you're still one of my sons. You're an heir. As a matter, I don't even want to hear what you did. Come back. You're welcome back. Known fully, yet loved and delighted in. That's what gets rid of shame. Right? Peter. Before Jesus died, Jesus said, Peter, I'll bet you, you will deny me three times. <laughs> it's pretty much a bet, right? You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter's like, no, no, I would die for you. Ah. Then the time came, denied him three times. Peter ran away, ashamed. Went back to his old job, fisherman. Now when he was fishing with John, and he saw Jesus afar from the beach, and they saw him, they, rec they recognized what he said about putting, casting the nets on the right side of the boat. Peter's like, that's Jesus. He didn't even wait for John to row back. He swam back. No shame. And then what did, he, what did he say? He was forgiven by Christ. Right then and there. He didn't talk about you owe me 20 bucks for that bet. No. What gets rid of shame? Run away? Hide? No. What gets rid of shame is knowing that even though you are who you are, we are who we are, God's relentless love, this relentless pursuit of keeping covenant will not change. That's going to change. That's not going to change. That gets rid of shame. Again, living in guilt and shame because of sin is like running away from God. But thank God that his love and his commitment to his covenant is relentless. And it has to be. Because of the guilt and shame that we still deal with in our own lives, even now. But here, good news. Good news is the more we believe, the more we grow in faith, the more we can see God's relentless love and commitment to covenant keeping through the gospel, the more guilt and shame in our lives will go away. Amen? Let's keep our eyes focused on God's grace through the gospel. And by his grace, let us overcome. Help us overcome our enslavement to our own guilt and our own shame. Amen. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. Gracious, gracious, gracious.